The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready to talk sports with one of the leading sports journalists of today? Welcome to All Around Sports with John Inglesby. John's years of experience as a journalist has allowed him to net exclusive interviews with the top players, former players, commissioners, and owners. John and his guests are ready to give you the straight word when it comes to sports. Now, let's talk all around sports. Here's your host, John Inglesby. Voice America listeners. Welcome to the 124th ever show of All Around Sports. Reach Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, we broadcast live from Boston, once again the city of champions, to go all around the world of sports for one hour to discuss what happened this week and what's coming up for the weekend. To join the show, the call-in number is 1-888-346-9144, or you can email me at iir at comcast.net. <clears throat> which comes to me through my website at www.iirsportsoneword.com. As always, I will give you my highlights, lowlights, and bizarre news items from this past week. Also, in a few minutes, we'll be joined by our baseball historian, Chaz Scoggins, and after that, <clears throat> our weekly call-in expert, A.P. Stedham of Bama Magazine. Well, speaking of baseball history, we... Uh, Certainly had it again here this week in Boston and really uh, overall for the World Series. Uh, obviously, my highlight of the week was the Red Sox winning the World Series uh, for the first time in 95 years at Fenway Park since 1918. As you all well know by now, needless to say, it is just all Red Sox all the time up here. It has just been uh, a wild month capped off by an absolutely wild week that is just uh, continuing on and on and on. And we'll get into a lot of this with uh, with Chaz Scoggins when he calls in. Chaz worked at the Lowell Sun uh, covering the Red Sox for decades. Is also one of the Red Sox uh, official scorers at Fenway Park. So he has uh, a perspective like no other. But it was just a great World Series, um, and it will be capped off this uh, tomorrow when there will be a parade, uh, as they like to call it up here in Boston, a rolling rally on the duck boats through Boston. It's going to cross right over. Uh, it's going to leave Fenway Park, cross right over the Boston Marathon finish line, and end up in the Charles River. Literally, uh, the duck boats float. And that's why they're called duck boats. And so it's going to be a great day. Uh, there will be many hundreds of thousands. It'll be interesting to see. I think estimates for 2004 were 2 million, maybe more. I don't think they're going to get there, but I think they're going to, uh, it'll be interesting to see if they top a million tomorrow. 
Uh, but it's just been a week like no other. Um, it's the eighth world championship here in Boston since 2000, early 2002, uh, February to be exact, when Adam Vinatieri uh, hit the famous kick in the Superdome to beat the Rams. I was there for that game. And again, here we are 11 years later, eight world titles. Um, so just an incredible run. It's the most championships by any North American city in this short of a span ever. So it's pretty cool. And obviously Boston is just a sports crazed city and now even more so. Um, likable team, obviously. I mean, this whole marathon bombing connection from April, uh, the two just fit hand in glove. And by that, I mean, this Red Sox team, I said, they're likable really even more than that. They just really were terrific with visiting the hospitals and having the victims <clears throat> over to Fenway nonstop, the beards, everything about this team, you know, a lot of them were, you know, cast off from other teams, the guys who were here for chicken and beer in 2011 and last year's last place finish, uh, they came to, to spring training determined to turn it around. I'm speaking, of course, of John Lester, Jacoby Ellsbury, and of all people, John Lackey. They got rid of the Deadwood. So it, it, it really, worst to first, spectacular turnaround, historic in every way. World Series is great, too, never-before-seen endings. I'm talking, of course, of the obstruction call to end uh, Game 3 and then followed up the next night by the pickoff throw to end game four. Neither had ever been done to end a World Series game before. So pretty amazing in that regard. And uh, and for me personally, I got to go to game two of the World Series, which was my first ever World Series game in my life that I had attended. So I got to cross that off the sports bucket list. And uh, again, a, a week like no other, and it just continues unabated. It is just, you know... Incredible, the energy here in Boston that will reach its pinnacle tomorrow. I uh, talked to a number of people who were at Fenway Park. They just said it was the loudest they've ever heard it. No surprise when they actually won the other night. They said from the moment Victorino's uh, had the two-run, the, the, the three-run uh, double off the Green Monster, that from that moment on it was just nobody sat. It was just a, a nonstop roar and, frankly, just a big party that went pretty much all night for a lot of people. So hats off to the Red Sox, and they really uh, they went wire to wire, and they just deserve all the credit. Uh, a unique, unique group of athletes that will go right beside the group in 2004 that broke the curse and uh, and. I just feel fortunate to be living here and to have a ringside seat for all that's gone on here over the course of the last 11 years. It has truly been incredible, and this week will rank right up there as among the most incredible, to say the least. Well, my low light of the week is sort of the flip side. Uh, as all you listeners know, I'm from Pittsburgh, so when the schedule came out last May for the NFL, I certainly circled 
this Sunday's game against the Steelers. I wasn't alone. <clears throat> Obviously, it's the 425 start. It is the featured game of the weekend, uh, which was designated, of course, many months ago. <clears throat> and there's just no buzz. I mean, it's the Steelers are just having such a horrible season. Uh, thought they were showing signs of life with two wins in a row. And then they go out to Oakland and lose. And uh, very disappointing from the Steelers' point of view. Had they been riding a three-game winning streak into here, I think it would have really uh, added a lot to this. I mean, I've this is my favorite game of the year. I've been to many of these Steeler-Patriot games, and even in Pittsburgh, the AFC title game a few years back, and it is just spectacular. So to really not have that going on for this game uh, is just disappointing. Um, but who knows? Who knows? Uh these two teams have quite a history. The Steelers are still the Steelers. The uniforms will be the ones we're used to seeing. So uh, they haven't given up, uh, as they showed with their two victories, including one over the Ravens. So uh, it should be fun to watch. But, again, and I realize part of this is due to the World Series, obviously. But uh, had it been a typical Steelers-Patriots game following on the heels of the World Series, literally the day after the parade tomorrow, uh, this could have gone down as one of, like, the, the all-time weeks, literally, transitioning from baseball into, you know, real serious uh, football. And I'm guessing there'll be some Red Sox there or some type of Red Sox celebration at Gillette Stadium. I will be there. Can't wait to see what, if anything, they do. I'm guessing there'll be some Red Sox players, the trophy, what have you. Uh, Larry Lucchino, Red Sox president and CEO, showed up last night at the Garden unexpectedly at the Bruins game with the trophy in hand and displayed it to the crowd with uh, Cam Neely. <clears throat> and it looked like the place just went crazy. So, again... <clears throat> the, the the crossover between the teams up here is pretty cool, and I expect we'll see something on Sunday. And who knows, maybe we'll see a, uh, a great football game uh, like we're used to between the Patriots and the Steelers as well. My bizarre story of the week was watching last night's Dolphins-Bengals game that crazily ended with a safety, the third NFL game in history to end in overtime with a safety. And it was really uh, <clears throat> one of the better Thursday night games I can ever remember. Uh, I tuned in in the third quarter, and it was just dramatic. It was just great stuff, highlighted by, the, uh, by <clears throat> Giovanni's run that was like, 35 yards for a touchdown, but in reality, he ran 70, 80, 90 yards. Crisscrossing the field, a uh, fabulous player to watch. I mean, one of the more entertaining runners in the NFL in recent years. So that was great, but to have that game end the way it did on a safety was like sudden death personified and uh, really quite bizarre, to say the least. So now, as my former co-host, Lemont Williams from Outside the Huddle, likes to say, it's time to pay some bills, so let's take our break. And next up will be our baseball historian, Chaz Scoggins.
your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. The job of a professional athlete is never complete. In Life After the Game, host Lamar Campbell will take an inside look at how athletes are making the transition from the professional athletics world to the professional business world. You'll understand the goals, motivations, and personalities that drive these players off the field and in their post-professional career. Tune in to Life After the Game with Lamar Campbell every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. Sports and medicine go hand in hand. Quite simply, if you aren't up to your game health-wise, you won't be up to your game on the field. That's where Bruce the Sports Doc comes in. Dr. Bruce Grossinger uses his medical training and experience to bring you a link between sports and medicine, from the latest advances and treatments to discussion behind the injuries of the week. Bruce the Sports Doc and his team of guest experts are here each week to lay it on the line in terms that you can understand. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Channel. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Internet flagship station for sports. Voice America Sports. You're listening to All Around Sports with your host, John Inglesby. Become a part of today's show by calling 1 888 346 9144. That's 1 888 346 9144. Or by sending an email to IIR at Comcast.net. Now, Back to the show. Voice America listeners, welcome back to segment two of All Around Sports, and I am your host, John Inglesby. To join the show, the call-in number is 1-888-346-9144, or you can email me at iir at comcast.net. And it's that time of the show when we typically have guests, and on the line is our baseball historian, Chaz Scoggins. And Chaz, thanks for calling in today. How are you doing? Doing uh, doing pretty well, John. Thanks. Just celebrating like everybody else about the uh, Red Sox victory. Exactly. Well, uh, I said baseball history, and they certainly made it this week. Uh, first World Series win at Fenway in 95 years. It was just uh, something to behold, to say the least. Yeah, I love what I love the way Johnny Gomes put it afterwards, where he said, "You know, I, I play in the museum, and this museum is loud." <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I said in the first segment that I talked to some people who were there, and they said, you know, easily the loudest they've ever heard Fenway Park. No surprise, but they just said from the moment of Victorino's three-run double that that was it. It was just a, a, a roar for the rest of the night. Everybody's standing. Basically, nobody sat pretty much the rest of the game. And just basically, uh, you know, seven-inning-long party after that. from that point on. And the party will continue uh, tomorrow, I guess, in Boston. We'll see uh, if they can turn out three million people again for this parade. Yeah, now is three million what you what they had for two thousand four? I thought I thought read somewhere. I think it was yeah. like three point two million people or something. Okay, I, I was thinking in the twos. I had said that in the first segment, but uh, it probably was. I'm sure it was three. Uh, 
you know, once you get over a couple million, what's another couple hundred thousand, right? But Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, given, obviously, it's on a Saturday. That's a big factor because they haven't all been on a Saturday. But the Bruins was. The 2004 team was. But the 2004 parade was not. Um, 2007, you mean, right? No, 2004, I know it was on a Saturday, but it wasn't right, that. Right, that was, but 2007 wasn't. That was, was on not. another day of the week? I, I believe it was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but 2004 was not good weather. That was a right. raw, The people cold. turned out anyway. They did. So kind, of day, like, kind of like today is. You know, exactly. Kind of, well, uh, tomorrow, kind of gloomy. And today is gloomy but warm, but tomorrow is supposed to be upper 60s. And just a nice weather, so I wouldn't be shocked if they get over $2 million. Um, for the eighth parade in this city in the last 11 years. Just incredible when you think about it. Um, but, you know, it's funny when I think back to 2004, we had our own little, little parade where Kurt Schilling lives in our town uh, in suburban Boston. So the night before the 2004 parade, which was the day after they had clinched, Emails began circulating around town uh, that Kurt Schilling was going to be driving up the, the main road through town. So we all just went up to our, the end of our street, which is, borders this, which is on this main road, and basically Schilling just stopped right in the middle of the road, rolled down his window, and way we all had, you know, the whole street was there, and basically it was just great. So we had our own private parade that day. <laughs> That's nice. It was, it was, back in the heyday of Kurt Schilling, bloody sock and all, but... Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, so... As long as you didn't ask to, him to get out of the car and run a victory lap, you, I'm sure he was accommodating. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Anything went in those days, that's for sure. But back to current days, and, you know, this World Series was incredible. I mean, the one, you know, two games ending in a fashion that had never been seen before. One, of course, being the obstruction call. The other, the next night, being the pickoff throw. I got to ask you, what'd you think of the whole obstruction situation? Uh, they they got it right uh, by the strict interpretation of the rule. But I wondered if Jim Joyce would have ruled it if, if uh, Middlebrooks hadn't lifted his feet. If he left his feet flat on the ground before uh, Craig ran into him. I, I wonder if maybe he might have overlooked it and said, okay, and there's no way the guy can get out of the way. But I think once he saw him lift his feet, that's when he decided he had to, uh, he had to call it. But they called it, by the, called it by the book, and it was, it was the correct call. But it, it couldn't help but conjure up old memories of the 75 World Series with the arm brister fisk uh, collision. Of course, that wasn't obstruction. That should have been interference. And, uh, again, Larry Barnett, the umpire in 75 interpreted, he said, well, he didn't intentionally interfere, but, again, intent is not part of the rule. You know, right. He interfered with him, and it should have been called. So Barnett got it wrong in 75, and, uh, unfortunately for the Red Sox, although it only delayed things, uh, Jim Joyce got it right in uh, it, it, this time. And, and I think you might remember as well, uh, where one of these calls went in the Red Sox favor, and it was in, I believe, the 2003 uh, Division Series against the Oakland A's, where uh, the Red Sox won a game where, uh, I think it was Eric Burns, somebody, uh, or, or Miguel Tejada, I guess, interfered uh, with a Red Sox fielder rounding third base, and uh, the Red Sox were able to win, win that game. That was one that played into favor of the Red Sox. 
You have a great memory because I was literally, at, I was at that game and it happened right in front of me. In fact, one of my most vivid memories in all of sports and every, all the games I've attended in every sport is Eric Burns. We were right near the third base dugout, close to the field, near the on deck, visitors on deck circle, and Eric Burns, as that play unfolded, and he was called out, came walking right towards us, swearing up a storm, and you could hear every word. I mean, that's it was that big of a, it was that big of a deal. And you're absolutely right. It was Tejada, Eric Burns. They were involved in that same play, but Eric Burns became the goat of that play, and that was incredible. And uh, again, it's I witnessed it, and you know, I did think of that this week, and uh, it was just amazing. So let me ask you this, Chas. So is your interpretation that the umpire? perceived Middlebrooks raising his legs like an attempt to block him from oh, I getting got the home plate? Middlebrooks did it in an attempt to block him. But even okay. if he didn't, the fact that he raised his legs instead of just laying completely flat on the ground, I think right. that was, I really think that was the difference in, in whether, what, and the call being made. I don't know there was an intentional one on Middlebrooks' part, but it certainly looked intentional. And uh, it may have just been coincidence. No, and I, and I hear you, and I found myself wondering about that, but also thinking, had Middlebrooks attempted to stand up, then he absolutely positively would have, you know, caused him not to be able to run to home. I mean, clearly, I mean, he, had he attempted to stand up, he literally might have, like, knocked him over or whatever. Oh, sure. I mean, we'll never know. I'm just saying that would have even potentially been more of an obstruction than what ended up actually occurring but you know well, we'll, we'll never know but i think you know had it middlebrooks you know got got onto his hands and started to push himself up maybe craig would have run around him but Correct. when he sees not on the ground i think craig tried to hurdle him and then then the legs yep. came up and yep. uh, i think that's really what caused the uh, the interference so yeah and i get the, now, I, you, know, the, you just kind of look back look back at it i think and realize that had it not been for a couple of ill-advised throws, fact is, Salpolamaki never should have thrown the ball to, to third base to begin with. He had no chance to get Craig. And you got two right. outs, uh, a weak hitter coming up, no pinch hitters on the bench that uh, Matheny can use, and it was just a, a bad decision to throw the ball down there uh, to begin with. And you take out those two ill-advised throws, Breslow's throw to third base, Salpolamaki's throw to third base, that both end up being errors. Take those out of it, Red Sox might have swept the series. Yes, and it's funny because, you know, what's lost in all of this, of course, is Dustin Pedroia making a, practically a Derek Jeter-like play, you know, the famous play against the A's. Right. Where Pedroia, you know, they got that first runner at home plate with what would have been, of course, the winning run. I mean, Pedroia made a great play, threw him out, and had the play ended right there. That would have gone down as one of the more, you know, notable plays potentially in, you know, World Series history. I mean, it was that good of a play. And, I mean, to say nobody is talking about it would be an understatement. <laughs> it, it could, yeah, well, it if, got, you know, if it hadn't been the interference, it would have been a heck of – it would have been one of the, the great plays at all time because uh, you would have had uh, Pedroia making the terrific stop, getting the first out at home, and then getting the second – or the second out of the inning at home, and then getting the third out of the inning at home if it hadn't been for the interference all in that play. It would have been a phenomenal uh, – a highlight play for, for the ages. Oh, no question. Well, in the end, I know, is it, I think it's a bad rule that they called right, a la the tuck rule of years ago for the Tom Brady and the Patriots. But uh, 
I think my feeling on something like this is, you know, typically, you know, is always the same, and it certainly applies here more than ever. I hate to see, you know, not that the umpires think in this way, but, you know, I hate to see a game decided like that, like just if if he would have not made the call, just no call, and the guy's out, uh, Craig, they call Craig out at home plate, and there's no call on obstruction, you, you know, the game goes on. That's all I'm trying to say. Maybe, Fairly or unfairly, yeah. it, it goes on and it gets decided. Yeah, John Farrell, uh, uh, John Farrell said afterwards, and he you know agreed looking at it that that Jim Joyce had made the the right call. But you know, I, I think you know, Farrell said afterwards he you know, he hoped that they rewrite the rule to uh, reflect intent in there somewhere. Right. And normally, when I think a play like that <laughs> happens on a, a on a huge stage like the World Series, there'd be more sentiment towards looking at a rule. Like that than uh, than if it had happened in a in a game in June. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and maybe they will look at it, and maybe they will uh, will change the rules and uh, alter the rules a little bit, and 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 make sure intent is part of the uh, part of the equation. Because uh, it, it was said like with with, uh, with Barnett in '75, there is room for interpretation by the umpires Correct. on these cases. It isn't cut and dry. They can choose to call it or, or not call it. But in the in each case that they you know they chose to call it, it was uh, well certainly in Joyce's case it was the correct call at least according to the way the rule was written. It was yes, you really can't argue that. Um, well, and then the, to have the very next night to have you know the pickoff throw. I mean to bring in a pinch runner that you know that's his basic function in life. And to have him picked off, I mean, he, he was crying the next day, as we all saw, you know, when he was being interviewed at the locker room that night. I mean, we all saw the highlights the next day, and uh, that was an incredible way to end, end the ball game. And to me, it just, you know, uh, enhanced the unbelievable performance by Uehara. It was just incredible. Yeah, it was. We saw some weird things in this, in this, in this World Series, so it's... Uh... Uh, you know, certainly one for the ages again. Well, it really was, and the way that came across was pretty weird, too. I mean, the cameras didn't catch it. There was like a delayed reaction, if you know what I'm saying. Right, right. Like, the yeah, everybody picked up on it, and nobody really talked that much about it, but, you know, the announcers uh, didn't even well, you didn't talk really about it until like two it wasn't seconds. Until they went to the other camera angles that you could actually see how the play, how the play developed. That, that's exactly right. Um, one, you so, know, one thing about this, this this series, though, John, and, uh, and I, I'm not sure the Red Sox pitching staff has gotten enough credit for uh, for what they did in this in this postseason. I mean, you, you have to applaud the hitters for going up against three formidable pitching staffs. Uh, the Red Sox hitters set a record; they struck out 165 times in the postseason. They averaged more than 10 strikeouts a game. Yet they found a way to you know to grind things out, to grind out hits, grind out runs, grind out victories. But and all that, I think you know, the fact that how stingy Red Sox pitchers were, and as you look at it and realize as, as close as the series was with the Cardinals, they still have scored the Cardinals twenty-seven to fourteen, and at least a couple of those runs were, were unearned. We're looking at a, about you know about a two point zero zero ERA for the Red Sox pitching staff in the World Series. I just don't you know everybody raved about. The, the, you know the tough pitching you're going to see from Tampa Bay and certainly Detroit, who I thought their pitching was just phenomenal, at least starting pitching. 
bullpen's a different story. And the Cardinals' uh, pitching was was terrific as well. And yet, yet still, the Red Sox, you know, not just John Lester, but but Lackey and and everybody else who went pitching, they did a terrific job. And I'm not sure they've gotten the, the credit that's due them. That's true. That's very very true. Uh, and, you know, I'm looking at a text from a guy I went to college with, lifelong resident of Philly, huge sports fan. He sent me a text yesterday. It says it all. Send Victorino back to Philly. <laughs> and I responded by saying I never understood why they let him go in the first place. Because that guy, even when he was in with the Phillies, I always liked him. always just thought he was a winner and a glue guy. And he certainly showed that, uh, to say the least. I mean, he had yeah, between the Grand Slam and the three-run double. In the in the clincher, just an amazing po- and and probably no other hits in between to speak of, right? Uh, and that held true for a lot of Red Sox players, uh, including Stephen Drew. Amazing how just about every one of them bounced out of their slumps with like amazingly huge hits and timing. Yeah, they they all found the right time to to come through. And and Victorino too. I mean, the fact that he pretty much gave up switch hitting towards the end of the season and to go and to face three pitching staff, the quality of Tampa Bay, Detroit, and, and, and St. Louis, and going up right-handed against those right-handed pitchers uh, it shows, you know, a, I think a lot of, you know, Victor, I'm sure, felt he didn't have a choice with his hamstring issue that, that led to him batting exclusively right-handed. But still, to go up there when, when uh, you haven't hit right-handed since you left high school, uh, you know, hit right hand, right hand against right handers since you left high school, and to go up there and do that on on the world's biggest stage, baseball's biggest stage. I mean, that shows a lot of uh, a lot of and just tremendous fortitude, I guess, on the part of on the part of Victorino. And that's who he's, and that really goes back to my thoughts about him. Just like a, you know, just a quality, gutsy player, team guy, all of those things, and. uh and then we'll just cap it off here. We're down under a minute, but Johnny Gomes, in, in my mind, with all that went on, including Big Pappy hitting over 700, the key hit of the entire World Series, if not, you know, was Johnny Gomes' three-run homer. That just yeah. that, that just changed everything in my mind. Yeah, you're down 2-1 to one at Chan. Once they go down 3-1, to one, I'm not sure the Red Sox could have come back from that Correct. deficit. But to, uh, but, to, but to win that game... And then uh, go on to win the next three. It was uh, you're, you're, you're right, John. It's, it's clearly maybe the turning point for the Red Sox in that in that series. Much as Ortiz's grand slam in Game Two of the ALCS was the turning point of that of that series. Right, and I would say you know Ortiz's grand slam against the Tigers was the uh, turning point of the whole postseason, so to speak. Yeah, you know, no I mean, question. they don't get past that. <clears throat> They're not even in the World Series, so. Correct. They're down. They, he doesn't do that. They're down 2-0, headed to Detroit, and none of and, and there's no parade tomorrow. Let's put it that way. It's just that simple. <laughs> but there is, so we can enjoy it. Exactly. Well, Chaz, thanks again. You've called in uh, three of the past four weeks. It's pretty much the whole month of October. It's been a wonderful ride having you call in. You have followed the Red Sox, covered them for decades, so... Your perspective has been spectacular and much appreciated. Well, thank you, John. All right, and I'm sure we'll be talking soon. I'm sure we will. All right, Chaz, thanks again. Bye-bye, and with that said, uh, we're going to take our break, and on the other side will be AP Stedham of Bama Magazine. (laughs) 
your internet flagship station for sports. Voice America Sports. Lockdown coverage. Get ready to talk sports with the big guys. Tune in to Lockdown Coverage with Keith Lewis every Tuesday for the inside and outside of the business of sports. Keith and his guests will provide expert commentary and answer all of your burning questions about your favorite team, the players, and what's next. It's time to have fun with the game. Listen for Lockdown Coverage with Keith Lewis and his favorite co-hosts every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The talk doesn't get any hotter. Do you love sports talk? Can't get enough sports talk? Have we got a show for you. It's about the NFL training camps, Super Bowl previews, a look at the new starting quarterbacks, and weekly key injuries. We'll take your calls and emails right on the air. Former Philadelphia Eagle James Loving is your host, and you never know who'll drop by for a co-host spot or an interview on the spot. Tune in to Loving That Sports Talk with James Loving every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. Your internet flagship station for sports. Voice America Sports. You're listening to All Around Sports with your host, John Inglesby. Become a part of today's show by calling 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or by sending an email to iir at comcast.net. Now, back to the show. Voice America listeners, welcome back to segment three of All Around Sports. And I'm your host, John Inglesby. To join the show... The call-in number is 1-888-346-9144, or you can email me at iir at comcast.net. And on the line with us is our weekly call-in expert, A.P. Studham of Bama Magazine. And A.P., thanks for calling in. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, John. I'm on the other side of the Mobile Bay. It's raining hard today, and the only reason I, I don't like that to happen is because they're playing high school football games this evening. And it will be raining then? Might be. Might be raining. Sure sure might. All right. We have the same weather up here in Boston. Not only rain, but temps in the 60s. So uh, I'm guessing, you know, it's probably very similar to what you have going on down there. Yeah, yeah it sure is. But it, we've ha- been having good weather so far since I've been down here. And hopefully the weekends on Saturday will stay bright and sunny. Terrific. Uh well, <clears throat> I just want to start off by following up our discussion of uh, last week when you talked about the ticket situation down there at Alabama, and I know that Alabama is not playing. They have a bye week. But it looks like I you know, read a few things about uh, Alabama addressing or taking away some blocks of tickets. Did I read that all correctly? Yeah, yeah, they, they take these things pretty seriously because – there's so many people, John, that want to see a game. I mean, for instance, next weekend for that LSU game, there 101,000 will be inside the stadium. Heck, I don't. I would imagine there'd be 20 or 30,000 just outside enjoying the moment. Really? Yeah, that's the wow. level of excitement that <clears throat> the has brought to Tuscaloosa, and the atmosphere is, is fabulous. I mean, the logistics of everything is, you know, the university is right 
right in the center of town. The stadium is right down the street from the quad section where you have all the tents that are set up on, I think it's Thursday night or Friday morning, and, and you can just walk downtown from there. So it's really convenient for fans because even if you don't have a ticket, you can celebrate on the quad and be right next to you. You, hear, you can hear the roar of the stadium. It's just diagonal from where your tent is. Right, right. Well, uh, nobody will be leaving that game in two weeks. That's for sure. No, no be I doubt it. <laughs> against LSU. I mean, it was a mere just two years ago when they played that epic game. What was it? 9-6? Defensive right. struggle? Sure, sure. Yeah, it sure was. And that uh, mystified everybody, that 9-6 to six game, you know, defensive struggle. And those were two high-scoring teams, John, believe it or not. I believe that season LSU scored 500 points going into the bowl game. And Alabama was right near the record of 470-plus points. So it wasn't like they didn't have good offenses, but the defenses were very strong as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, let's face it, you know, the game was – viewed by many as being, quote, boring, because it was such a defensive struggle. And there was a lot of, if I remember correctly, you know, a lot of missed field goals, mostly by Alabama that night. But, you know, that was a game the entire country was just waiting, you know, a so-called game of the century, as we get from time to time. <laughs> and that was that one, but it it didn't live up to expectations because it was basically just traded field goals and and a lot of missed field goals to boot. Yeah, yeah, no, it didn't excite the people watching the game, but I think they were two of the best teams in the country and ended up playing uh, for the championship. So it, it worked out uh, miraculously for both teams to have a chance to repeat. And I remember after the game, Les Miles said he, he'd be honored to, to play Alabama again, and he was a little bit of a fortune teller that, that evening. Right, they ended up playing in the national championships game that year. And... uh now, is, I know Alabama's off this week, and what, and what a perfect time to have two weeks off leading into the game with LSU. But is LSU playing, or are they off this week? No, LSU has the same, is in the same situation. So uh, those teams should be rested and healthy and have all their game plans ready and you know, looking forward to it. I mean, LSU... You know, they're going to play with nothing to lose since they've, they've lost a couple of times. Right. And uh, they're going to create some problems because, uh, you know, their quarterback had a fabulous game last year, a coming out game against Alabama. So he's a senior. He's looking to improve his NFL stock. So Alabama will be challenged, and it'll be for all the marbles. Because I don't think this year, John, that uh, Alabama's going to be able to have a loss and be in the BCS championship game. I tend to agree with that. Uh, yeah, Zach Mettenberger is the LSU quarterback, and he certainly, uh, you know, he had his second career game, if you will, earlier this year against Georgia. Uh, and, you know, so, and they lost that game too. So, um, yeah, so it's going to be, uh, it's going to be great theater. That's great that both teams are off uh, leading into that game. That's good. That should enhance you know, the the playing level for both teams. Yeah, I think so. And then there's no hard feelings among the coaching staffs that the SEC has plotted against them. So one team has to play, for instance, a, a big rival the, the, the previous weekend. So I, I like that. I like it from that aspect as well. Absolutely. Level playing field. That's important. 
Yeah. Very important. But I think what you said, you know, it's, I think it's the first time in, you know, the last three meetings, so in a couple of years, that one of the teams, in this case LSU, it, they don't have any pressure. I mean, it's the first time that there hasn't been a national championship on the line, so to speak. So they're really going to be able to just let it all hang out and just have fun and do what they do, which is like fly around the field, like, uh, which I think is going to present, you know, to make for a much better game. Oh, oh yeah, it'll be a strong test for Alabama and Les Miles. I'm sure he's feeling the heat, and he's going against Nick Saban, and he's a hated guy down there in Louisiana by some people. I I, I don't know why, because he kind of brought that dormant program back to life with a championship, and he set the table for the next fellow, the Mad Head or Les Miles. So exactly. I, I don't quite understand the disdain for Nick Saban, although, you know, when he came back to the league and he came back to a Western Division rival, I, I, you know, that, that makes me understand a little bit. But uh, I'd, be, I'd be glorifying Nick Saban's name if I was in Louisiana because he, he set the table for the next man. I totally agree. My perspective on that very similar situation was, you know, when Bill Parcells did the same thing, you know, made the Patriots respectable, <clears throat> to put it mildly, took them to the Super Bowl. And then when he went to the Jets, people disliked him. And time does cure these things because now Parcells is beloved. But when it was happening in those days, people felt jilted up here. And I didn't understand it. I mean, I, I'll never... I bought my season tickets to the Patriots the day after Parcells was hired. And here I stand 20 years later feeling like, you know, it's the best purchase I've ever made in my life. And it was. So I have nothing but appreciation for Bill Parcells, no matter who he coaches, no matter what he does. It's just what he did here, along with really Bob Kraft and, and Drew Bledsoe. Those were the three that changed everything. So... Right. I, I agree with you on Saban. He, you know, LSU, great program and dormant for a time, and then he just brought him back to life. So I, I never understood uh, the feelings toward him. Yeah, he taught him how to win again. <clears throat> you know, from from now on, unless they get the next coach really follows up the program, they should be winning and competing for SEC titles from here on out. Yeah, well, you know, this game is going to be interesting. I haven't, you know, um, less miles. I mean, I don't know that I can think of a much better coach than him, given the situation and the history with two weeks off, given what's at stake. In other words, less miles is in the unique position of potentially stopping the Alabama dynasty and the run at history, becoming the first team ever, basically, to win three championships, national championships in four years, three in a row. Um, and so I, the Mad Hatter, you said it perfectly. I just see him down there. You know, he, he, he's different. Let's put it that way. And I, and I mean different. In this situation, I think different is good. Uh, that he, he, is, he, he is capable of pulling it off. He really is. Yeah, he's an entertaining personality, John. When you, if you ever get a chance to sit in on his press conferences, you just don't know which direction they're going to turn, and right. on which question, and what what platform he's willing to jump off of that day. Exactly, exactly. And again, 
just knowing he is different like that and him knowing, and as we all do, that, you know, he, he can be the guy to basically derail the uh, Alabama's, you know, express to history. So he's, he's going to do some different things, no question about it. He has, okay. For the first time, he has nothing to lose. And, and uh, John, he's got some uh, – he hasn't played Texas A&M yet. Right. So, I mean, he's got two interesting opponents – uh, the next two, you know, the next two opponents are uh, Alabama, and then he has another open date to prepare for Johnny Manziel in Texas A&M. And that one is down in Death Valley. That sure is down in Death Valley. Baton Rouge sure is. That's going to be big Saturday night game. Yes, yeah, that'll be. Yep, I, I would think it would be a Saturday night game. I'm so. sure. Yep. I'm sure. But but um, John, I was just going to mention to you. If your your audience didn't know, but Alabama has the off week as we stated. But on Sunday, sixty minutes will run a profile of Nick Saban. Oh, I already DVR'd that thanks to you. So I appreciate you mentioning that on air. Uh, I'm very intrigued to see that, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. I uh, spoke to. Uh, I, mean, I, I communicated with Armin Katayan. Well, I actually spoke to him and met with him in December of last year. He told me that was an upcoming project, and that was at the SEC championship game. Wow. So we spent about eight is. months or so, yeah, eight months or so coming back and forth to Tuscaloosa. They went down to West Virginia, and they tried to, you know, looking for the Holy Grail to explain Nick Saban. And as I've always told many people, when you try to write about someone, it's, who raised them and how they were raised and what were the seminal moments in their life. And I agree, and I'm particularly intrigued because Nick Saban, believe it or not, is, as you said, from West Virginia and not far from where I worked as a newspaper editor for, worked and lived for a few years soon after college. So I'm very intrigued to see this. I have, you know, I have a history in West Virginia that uh, makes me, uh, very interested in how they're going to portray the West Virginia part of his life, to say the least. Right. And, uh, John, they have a um, another part of that interview will be shown on the, uh, I believe it's called uh, uh, CBS 60 Sports or something of that nature. It's on Showtime. I don't, I don't get Showtime, but they have a continuing second part of that interview will be on uh, Wednesday, November 6th. Oh, I do get Showtime, so I'll be tuned into that. I'm glad you mentioned yeah. that as well. Yeah, and I'm sure I butchered the name of that show, but folks who are familiar with it, please try, try to tune in if you if you enjoy that subject matter. You know, uh, absolutely. Well, thank you for enlightening us on that, AP. And uh, why don't we take our break here, and we have a lot more college football to talk about on the other side. flagship station for sports voice america sports this week on the revolution with jim and trav that's presented to you by outdoor channel hey we're talking wolves and the pros and cons of them with david allen from the rocky mountain elk foundation and minnesota deer hunter association executive director mark johnson our wolf pack with uh, jeff hagner who's the director of montana fish wildlife and parks and finally Mrs. Bonnie, and it's brought to you by Outdoor Channel and Ram Trucks. Wednesdays at 1 Pacific on the Voice America Sports Channel. 
Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Englehart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Your internet flagship station for sports. Voice America Sports. You're listening to All Around Sports with your host, John Inglesby. Become a part of today's show by calling 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or by sending an email to iir at comcast.net. Now, back to the show. Voice America listeners, welcome back to the fourth and final segment of All Around Sports. And I am your host, John Inglesby. And back on the line with us is our weekly call-in expert, A.P. Studham of Bama Magazine. And A.P., we talked uh, about the SEC, Alabama, LSU coming up next weekend. But this weekend, the ACC is going to take center stage when we have Florida State hosting Miami. And uh, that should be a great game tomorrow. i really looking forward to that tomorrow night. Yes, yeah, another step for Jameis Winston to see if he's going to get an invite to New York City. I, I believe he will based on his uh, first bunch of games. But Miami is a big underdog in that game, John. I think it's, they are. Uh, it's uh, an incredible number. It's 20-something. Uh, right, it's astounding. I, you know, it's unbelievable that that would ha- you know that would be the case with two undefeated teams. But but Miami's been sneaking by in a few games, so I suspect the Florida State's going to win that game uh, probably pretty handily. Well, I am now sitting here looking back, very happy with my game day decision to uh, drive twenty minutes to watch Florida State at Boston College and what was a great great game a couple weeks back. And now all of a sudden, you know, I'm looking at, you know, I get, you know, looking at a team that I saw that has turned out to be so far the number three team in the country. And Jameis, famous Jameis Winston is, you know, turning into the one of like the great freshman players in college football history to this point. I mean, it's reminding me of, you know, everybody from Herschel Walker right through Johnny Manziel as those, you know, seminal players who show up once a decade, really. And yeah, so- I'm really, I, I've enjoyed watching him the few months I've had to, to turn the TV into the Florida State game, and it would be something if uh, Florida State went undefeated and you, you had them, if Alabama was fortunate enough to make that game, you know, an Alabama kid from Hueytown recruited heavily by the Crimson Tide and having to go against Alabama, Jimbo, Jimbo Fisher was uh, offensive coordinator at LSU for Nick Saban, so there'd be a lot of a lot of stories uh, storylines within that game itself. And you know the two teams, they two states bordering each other. They recruit a lot of the same players. I mean, actually, this week there was a player committed to Florida State, and he and he and now he decommitted, and now he's going to Alabama. Really, from the Mobile area, offensive uh, center. <clears throat> 
Yeah. Well, you know, you, you raised such a good point. I mean, I used to live in Florida, and I was friends. I lived on the Gulf Coast near Tampa, but I was friends with a guy down there who grew up in Mobile. So, and he used to drive home all the time from Tampa to Mobile, all the time. <laughs> and so I never really, I haven't thought much about it, that Mobile, Alabama is how far from Tallahassee? Not very, right? No, I think it's about, a, I think it's about 200 on that I-10 right there in that corridor. Three-hour drive. Yeah, yeah, essentially. That is so interesting. Again, it's just not something that I think most people think about, and I haven't, even though I have, you know, a history to think about it. Um, where, yeah, Alabama, indeed, you know, and we're talking Florida's one thing. Florida's Florida Panhandle, where Florida State and Tallahassee are. That's another thing. <laughs> it's it's yeah. like about two different countries, isn't it, John? Totally. And I would think that the Florida Panhandle is a lot more like Alabama than, uh, you know, than the rest of Florida, obviously. So, I, again, yeah, that, those would be some great storylines, and not the least of which is just simply geographic. I mean, how, how far is it, you know, from Tallahassee to Tuscaloosa? Yeah, it's, it's got to be um, probably under 300 and maybe something of that nature, pretty close. Wow. That's amazing. Okay, so that, that's interesting. I just hadn't thought about that, but that could be a fabulous storyline. I also hadn't thought about, uh, I'm sure I knew it at the time, but I had forgotten that Jimbo Fisher, indeed, was uh, worked with Nick Saban. And, and, and John, well, believe it or not, it would have been even more, it would be more interesting if Vinny Sinceri was healthy because his dad is on the Florida State staff now. Wow. And Jeremy Pruitt, who was a secondary coach at Alabama, is the new defensive coordinator. It's amazing how these things are. Six degrees of separation, right? <laughs> it, it sure is, and you, you, but you have to have the scorecard to keep track. You do, and kind of ironic where uh, Jameis made his college debut at Pitt, which is, you know, and I grew up near Pittsburgh, so I was watching that night. And I was just completely blown away. I think he was something like, whatever, 25 of 27 throwing the ball that night or whatever, some crazy yeah. statistics for his first ever game. And, of course, Sinceri was the quarterback of Pitt. Right. Sinceri's yeah. brother. <laughs> right. Yeah, Tino, that's correct. And, yes. Uh, he, he looked so confident in the pocket. He, he, he's, he's very impressive. Right. We talked about it on the show the very next day where I said, you know, say what you want, you know. And Pitt may, you know, not be the power they once were, and the, this is not their best year. But all that said, what Jameis Winston went in and did that night at, at Heinz Field, where the Steelers play and where Pitt Panthers play, for him to do that in his first ever college game was pretty impressive. You know, and, and that instantly got my attention, just knowing what football means in Pittsburgh and that you just don't go in there and, like, blow out a team in your first ever game without there being uh without it being an impressive feat to put it that put it that way. Oh, oh yeah, he, because I've heard about him all, you know, the last couple of years, but to see him in action right away on national TV, uh, you know, very few people can look back at their college career and say I was on national TV as a freshman, I just dominated the other team. Correct. 
you know, the, the classic example of, you know, he burst on the scene. I mean, I had heard about him. I think a lot of us had, you know, uh, but didn't know much about him. I just had heard the name once or twice in the Florida State had this awesome freshman quarterback. And uh, that's the night, you know, again, he, he started to become famous. So should be fun tomorrow night. I'm looking forward to it, AP. Yeah, that's one of the games this weekend, John. It's kind of a slow weekend, but I'll look forward to that one. It will be a good one. Uh, well, believe it or not, we're at the end of our show. And once again, I want to thank you again, as always, for calling in and giving us your perspective and expertise on college football. There's nothing like it. We're getting into the good stuff now. It's, no, it's November. Need I say more? <laughs> well, thank you, John. It's my pleasure. All right, AP. And we look forward to doing it all again next week. And uh, again, thank you. Voice America listeners for tuning in and uh, look forward to doing it again next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks again for tuning in to All Around Sports with your host, John Inglesby. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. Have a terrific weekend, and we'll talk sports again next week.